Welcome to episode 6 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles the comic book adventures of Batman starting in 1986 after the Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And this episode, we're talking about Batman 403, the second issue written by Max Allen Collins. This time around, though, Collins' story is penciled by Dennis Cowan. I've got some things to say about Cowan, but since this is really just a fill-in issue, we're not going to do a whole creator spotlight on him. Maybe we will give him that treatment when he returns to draw a three-part story in Detective Comics 598 through 600, but that is still a ways down the road. So, with no creator spotlight this episode, let us jump right to the spinner rack section. Batman 403 had a January cover date, so what other comics were on sale that month, January 1987? Well, I think most importantly for our purposes, DC releases Batman The Dark Knight Returns hardcover. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, this is the first time a series basically ended just a month or two before, and then they immediately rushed out a collection. Yeah, they did not wait on this one. <laughs> no, I mean, this was the days before the trade paperback. I mean, you had some things like the the secret origins of the Marvel superheroes and all those books, and even the uh, the Treasury comics would sometimes act as a as a trade paperback like the Rachel Gould one that Rob and, mm-hmm. and Dan Greenfield talked about on Treasury Cast. But this was probably the first instant collection of anything. I mean, that just shows you how important it was. And it, it, it created its own part of the comic industry, really. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a pretty big deal. <laughs> they, knew oh, how much, they knew how much money they were making. And they're like, let's not skip on, let's not wait. Well, and, and not very long after this, the trade paperback comes out because this was uh, – I went and bought the trade paperback almost as soon as it came out. It was my first trip to a comic book shop uh, to go get it. So <laughs> so we're, we're coming up on that very soon. So it's it's cool to see. I think that's probably the big jump out of – as far as Batman's concerned here. I think the version that we had growing up – because my brother got a version of the trade paperback in 89 right after the movie came out. I think ours was the second print. The cover was like Batman was like giant standing behind the city, and the bat signal was sort of reflected on the side of a building. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it wasn't his silhouette behind the lightning or in front of the lightning bolt. So I don't think it was the first. I think it was the second printing, the second edition or second version. I think the first printing had that cover too, because I, I think my first one had that. And it might have been a second printing, and I didn't know it. But oh, I, maybe it was. My, mine had that too. I've got a very, I've got two copies. One that's beat all to hell, and one that's <laughs> one that's not too bad. Oh, but, I could uh, be wrong. I thought... It has that same. I had the poster of that too on my wall of yeah. that cover that we're talking about. So forever. So that was <laughs> that was cool. Speaking of which, um, <laughs> to show you how important the Dark Knight had already become, there's some comic called Clint Number One that's spoofing the cover of the Dark Knight Number One <laughs> or the collected edition here. <laughs> I don't know what Clint number one is, but there you go. Instant parody. There you go. It didn't take long. Um, Also this month, we got the new Superman era sort of kicked off after the Man of Steel miniseries wrapped up. We had Superman issue one by John Byrne, Action Comics 584 by John Byrne, and Adventures of Superman 424 by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway. And that, uh, I love that Jerry Ordway cover. That's Mm -hmm. that's still one of my favorite Superman covers. Oddly enough, that was the the least new book because they renumbered. Superman into Adventures of Superman, and they turned action into a team-up title, but it had the best 
best cover. <laughs> you know, go figure. But yeah, that was always a thing. Like, I like the first issue. I I like anytime I see Superman fighting Metallo. I love it. But that cover for Superman issue one, it's like really this is your number one issue. This is like your new milestone. You want to pick? It's such a weird, not what you would expect from a number one. Number one issues I usually associate with like posters now. Um, right. They're just like the big hero shot, and maybe X Men number one did that to me. It just sort of defined what a number one cover should look like. But yeah, I think the Ordway Adventures of Superman cover is much more what I would expect for the first issue of a new era. But I mean, you know, it's also hard to top the Man of Steel cover. That's just the extreme close-up of his chest with breaking the uh, breaking his shirt open. Right. Yeah. Uh, we also got the first issue of the four-part Demon miniseries by Matt Wagner. I have this in trade, and I really wanted to like this story. <laughs> but I found it a little bit, not quite impenetrable, but almost impenetrable. And I, I don't know what it was. I just, ah, it, 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 that let me down. So I haven't read that one, but I always was kind of interested in it because I, I like the demon, in theory. And uh, when that came out, I was kind of interested in it. But I think that that may have been on newsstands, but I'm thinking that might have been comic shop only. I don't remember seeing it. So either way, I, either way, it didn't make it to my neck of the woods. So yeah. Uh, other things from DC that month, we had Legends issue three, along with various Legends tie-in issues like Fury of Firestorm, Green Lantern Corps, a few others. Uh, Secret Origins ten, which was nominally a, a Legends tie-in, mm-hmm. that was the Phantom Stranger issue, one of the best issues of the entire series. I should know. I've got some experience talking about those things. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> Uh, History of the DC Universe number one came out, um, and Who's Who in the DC Universe volume twenty three. Is that the Talia issue? Uh, yeah. Last month was the Superman issue, so I think. Yes, yeah, she. Uh, yeah, yes, she's there on the cover. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep, she's there below Tarantula. Yeah, which, you know, the only time in history that Tarantula would be on the, <laughs> the main figure on the cover of a <laughs> of a Who's Who. Yeah. That, you know, I didn't get History of the DC Universe until Graffiti did the hardcover book, and I and I got that with the dust jacket, and it had the it's got the fold out poster that's got all the the jam of all the DC artists through the history, which is really cool. And and my my dust jackets beat all the hell, but man, I read that book over and over again, and it was expensive back then. That was a lot of that was a lot of allowance saved up to to buy that book. Let me tell you, <laughs> it'd be cool if Robin Shag covered that book sometime. Yeah, it would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, over at Marvel, um, a few other things that I noticed. Um, the Marvel graphic novel of Dracula by John Muth. I have never seen this. I, I don't know anything about it, but it was on Mike's Amazing World's list. And I was like, oh, okay, they did a graphic novel of Dracula. Mm. Um, something else that came out that month, Uncanny X-Men issue 213. Of course, it was written by Chris Claremont because he wrote the book for 16 years. But that issue, and it has a cover of Wolverine fighting Sabretooth, illustrated by Alan Davis and Paul Neary. Mm-hmm. The same month that they were taking over, or, or like it was the same month that they were they run on Detective Comics, they had this one fill-in issue of Uncanny X-Men. Isn't that the first issue that Wolverine and Sabretooth are connected? I think so. I think it establishes their background. I'm trying to think what we said. I think this is in the middle of the Morlock Massacre. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because this, like, right around this era is when I think they started to lose their steam. And, uh, and yeah, I think it was right after John Romita Jr. left. So 
Gotcha. Yeah. So this issue goes for a lot of money, I think, mm-hmm. as, as I recall. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you got this issue, if it's just in your long box somewhere, go <laughs> board and bag it, you know. Or And it was only Alan Davis's second work working with sort of the uh, the mutant characters. He had done, a, I think, a New Mutants annual before this. But then, yeah, that was just it, considering what he would end up doing with Excalibur and other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then the last—I uh, mean, you know—certainly we talked a lot about GI Joe and Transformers, and there were still eight or nine GI Joe and Transformers comics, you know, across yeah. both of them coming out this time. But uh, something that popped up to me: issue number one of Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, <laughs> a, a four-issue miniseries, began this month over at Marvel. You know, I had some of those action figures. I thought they were they were they were big. They were they were they were like superpowers figures, but they were scaled up because they had like you squeeze the legs and they did the the power action. And this was right as I was getting out of playing with toys. But uh, there were a couple things I was like grasping at. It's like, oh, this looks cool. And they had you know, and Chuck Norris is a real guy, and I've seen his movies, and and I had a few of those, but I have very little. I don't remember much about them, so you know, there wasn't a. They had some cool designs, but it was kind of weird. There was a cartoon, and it was kind of like the Rambo cartoon of the oh, of the yeah. day. You know, it's just it's just kind of this strange. How did that happen? Type <laughs> <laughs> type thing. <laughs> One thing I, I did notice, um, wanted to point out back in the, the the DC realm, that New Teen Titans number twenty seven, Jason Todd appears with the Teen Titans. That's where he was filling in here and there at, at times in that title. Oh, nice! Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, you know, of course, this is still kind of the pre crisis Jason <laughs> there, <laughs> and and in our books as as of right now. But yeah, and that. That'll come into play with uh, with Jason's fate, and you know, he, as he's considered a reserve member or a honorary member of the Teen Titans, that'll come into play on how uh, Dick reacts to uh, what happens to Jason. So, right, right, yeah. So there you go. All right. Any other books of notes that came out this month? Uh, not really. Uh, the Thundercats number eight looks like he's recreating the Spider Man. You know, the the famous the Spider Man bit where he's trapped underneath all that machinery oh, yeah. and the water's pouring down on him. The Steve Ditko thing. That's what it. That's what it jumps out at me. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, they're do- they're doing that. Okay, but other than that, so a lot of tie in comics as always. You know. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. We're going to take a short break to play a promo for another great podcast. I mean, great is subjective, by the way. Uh, And then we will be back with our review of Batman 403. Don't go away. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see... You are about to see... Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com.
Batman issue 403 is cover dated January 1987. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, though, the actual on-sale date was October 9th, 1986. The issue costs 75 cents and sports a cover by Dennis Cowan and Dick Giordano. The cover is a close-up of Tommy Karma holding the mask of Batman up for the reader to see. Words flank the Batman logo at the top to form the phrase, One Batman Too Many. What do you think of the cover? You know, I, I can't decide what I think of the cover. I, it's well executed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy certainly looks nuts. He's got red eyes that help. Uh, but the Batman cow looks a little small. It looks too small for his or anybody's head. It's like he took some kid's bat- Batman costume, <laughs> you know, and he's, he's like at the flea market. like, hey, you want a Batman costume? You know, uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure I like the white eyes as part of the cow that – I can't decide if I like that being lenses or it's just kind of an effect when he puts the cowl on. I don't know. But, you know, the text working in with the logo kind of works. We don't have the bat silhouette. I think it's a it's a good cover. It doesn't like wow me. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really tell enough of the what's going on with the story. I guess the text helps, but it's it's well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of my thing. I was like, it, it's technically fine. It doesn't necessarily move me. The one Batman too many thing, like, I, I get it, and that is sort of the title of the, the issue, but putting that logo on the cover would have made more sense on the last issue where we actually see two Batman. Like, mm-hmm. in this case, Tommy's not dressed as Batman. We don't necessarily know why he's holding up the mask. Has he just taken it from Batman? Has he defeated Batman in combat? Is is the is he holding it like a trophy, or is this something he's going to wear? Is he becoming the new Batman? And like, there's, I, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity about the meaning of him holding up the mask. So I don't necessarily get the impression from this cover that there are more than one Batman, whereas right. that was obvious on Starlin's cover to four o two. So yes. um, that aside, yeah, technically it's it's fine. It's a good image. So. I wonder if this is actually a Dennis Cohen face or if Dick Giordano erased the whole thing and drew it. <laughs> <laughs> it looks a little sketchy, uh, scratchier than, than Dick Giordano, but uh, yeah. maybe had Frank McLaughlin come in and draw <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Dick Giordano. I don't mean to need to slam him, but yeah. Yeah, you know, I think he, you know, we all know that he sent some stuff over to McLaughlin here and there to, to work on, so. And he would from time to time just say, I don't like the way you drew that. I'm going to do it better. Yep, and we'll we'll get into some of that later. That kind of kind of comes into some of the creative team problems we'll have later on down the line. All right, all right. You ready for, to talk about the story? Let's do it. All right. Batman four hundred and three is written by Max Allen Collins, penciled by Dennis Cowan, inked by Greg Brooks, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. One Batman too many begins with Batman murdering the Joker. Yep, just kills him. Then Two-Face jumps on Batman's back, but the Dark Knight, for want of a coin, flips Two-Face over his shoulder. Two-Face lands hard on his backside, and Batman appropriately calls Tails. Then Batman grabs Two-Face and smashes his head into the wall, muttering heads, as the duality-obsessed villain crumbles beneath a bloody smear on the wall. Of course, this isn't actually Batman. It's Tommy Karma, the former cop who believed he was Batman, even as he brought lethal force to his war on crime. Oh, and he wasn't fighting the Joker and Two-Face, naturally. This was all part of his hallucination. He still killed two people, though. They happened to be orderlies at Arkham Asylum, where Tommy was being held. Not for long, though. Tommy kicks out a reinforced window and, still thinking he's the Batman, leaps from the asylum, catches the branch of a nearby tree, and swings to freedom. 
In another part of Gotham, Bruce Wayne's on a date with Vicky Vale, discussing, would you believe it, Batman. Who pursued Batman once upon a time on another Earth, now sees the Cape Crusader as a dangerous vigilante. Still good for selling newspapers, though. Bruce and Vicky Vale leave the restaurant as it begins to rain. They duck into Bruce's car, and Vicky Vale confides that Bruce is more of the sort of man she's looking for these days. Body of an Olympic medalist, obscenely wealthy, not wearing a mask. Beyond the city limits, Tommy Karma runs through the woods as the rain picks up, soaking him. His target is Wayne Manor, for Bruce Wayne is the only man who came to Tommy's aid when he needed help. But, in the storm and confusion, Tommy has lost his sense of direction. He stops by some rocky bluffs, not realizing how close he is to the mansion. As Tommy stops to catch his breath, he finds a small cave in the rocks. He climbs in the cave to escape from the rain. He is Batman, after all, why shouldn't he find seclusion in a cave? Alfred drives Bruce and Vicky Vale back to her place. Vicky Vale tells Bruce she'd love to interview him for an article about Tommy Karma, since Bruce footed the bill for Tommy's top-of-the-line psychiatric treatment after his arrest. We are treated to some exposition reminding us of what happened back in Batman issue 402. Basically, that Tommy Karma was a cop whose family was murdered by mobsters, so he went crazy, thought he was Batman, who he idolized, and dressed up as the Dark Knight while going around Gotham killing muggers and mob hitmen. Bruce walks up to her apartment. He's still puzzled by her change in attitude toward the Batman. She calls the Cape Crusader a brute and a fascist who does more harm working outside the law, whereas Bruce Wayne is a man of compassion who helps people through his charitable foundations. She asks if he wants to come inside, but Bruce takes a rain check. Speaking of rain, it still hasn't let up as the police search for Tommy Karma on the edge of the Wayne property. They don't spot the entrance to the cave Tommy discovered, and even if they did, they wouldn't find him, for Tommy has climbed deeper into the cave, deeper into the darkness, until the cave opens up on a massive chamber, fully lit, containing rows of computer banks, a giant playing card, a giant penny, and a giant dinosaur. The Bat Cave. The actual Bat Cave, not part of Tommy's hallucinations. He has stumbled upon the actual, factual layer of the Caped Crusader. He feels invigorated and strips off the civilian clothes he was wearing in the asylum. He dresses in one of the actual Batman costumes hanging neatly on a clothes hanger and jumps in the actual Batmobile. In the mansion above the Batcave, Jason Todd is awoken from his slumber by the sound of what he thinks is the Batmobile driving off. He goes to the window and decides it must have only been thunder from the storm. Bruce and Alfred return to the mansion after midnight to find Jason awake in the kitchen having a snack. As Bruce is telling Jason about his date with Vicky Vale, Alfred interrupts to relay a message left on the answering machine, informing Bruce that Tommy Karma escaped from Arkham after killing two people. Bruce and Jason head down to the Batcave and change into their Batman and Robin costumes, but they stop short when Batman realizes the Batmobile is missing. Jason ribs his mentor about misplacing the car, maybe leaving it in a towaway zone, but Batman doesn't see the humor in it. Go figure. Alfred discovers Tommy's wet clothes and one of the costumes missing. Batman puts the rest of the situation together. Tommy would have come looking for Bruce Wayne for help. He discovered the Batcave on accident, probably not connecting Batman to Bruce, and took the Batmobile back to the city. Batman orders Robin to stay behind while he takes his Bat cycle to track down Tommy. The next morning, Commissioner Gordon enters his office to find Batman, the actual Batman, waiting for him. Gordon partially blames Bruce Wayne for Tommy Karma's escape, seeing as Wayne got Tommy moved to Arkham, where his proximity to villains like Joker and Two-Face exacerbated his psychosis. Batman warns Gordon to tell his men that Tommy Karma is not only loose, but wearing an actual Batman costume and driving around in the actual Batmobile. 
Tommy keeps a low profile during the day. The next night, the actual Batman braces Detective Peter Lewis, former partner of Tommy Karma. Batman knows that Detective Lewis passed his ex-partner the address of the mob hitman called the Snuffer. Lewis offers a rather soft denial, saying the Snuffer deserved to die anyway. He tries to play up his loyalty to his partner and friend, but Batman deflates that argument by reminding him Tommy can no longer recognize his friends from his enemies, or the two innocent orderlies at Arkham Asylum would still be alive. Lewis tells Batman that Tommy Karma would have been a great cop if he hadn't idolized the Dark Knight so much. His strong-arm tactics to coerce confessions quashed too many arrests. Batman asks Detective Lewis to think like his ex-partner. Where would Tommy go next? Lewis figures Tommy will target a gangster named Lou Spindle that they were building a case against, and who quite possibly took out the contract that got Tommy's wife and daughter killed. Spindle has been involved in virtually every type of crime over the years. Today, their racket includes the music business, and Lou Spindle is one of the honored guests at a trade show. The actual Batman arrives to find the actual Batmobile parked outside. Tommy Karma has already gone inside and started trouble. The counterfeit Batman swoops down on Spindle and grabs the man. Spindle's two sons open fire on the fake Batman, who uses Spindle as a human shield to take the bullets. Tommy and the actual Batman take out the two junior Spindles as the old man falls dead on the ground. The actual Batman tries to get Tommy to surrender. Instead, Tommy calls Batman an imposter and punches him. That's the only hit he lands, though, as the actual Batman beats the crap out of the actual imposter. Tommy slumps to the floor a broken man, physically and mentally, but the Batman offers his hand and walks Tommy Karma outside to get some help. So, his characterization of Batman was incorrect, because the Batman is Bruce Wayne and shares his compassion for a troubled soul like Tommy. And that is the story from Batman 403. Before we share our thoughts on this episode, I had one note for our listeners. Throughout this synopsis, you got to hear Kim Basinger's voice every time the name Vicky Vale was used. This was done at the request of our listener, David Ace Gutierrez, who asked that I use this audio clip for her name like Prince used in the song Bat Dance. There you go, Dave. I did that just for you, but this is a one-time only thing. I am not doing that every episode every time someone says Vicky Vale. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, now, Chris, my friend, what did you think of One Batman Too Many? Uh, you know, this issue starts out strong in both art and story, and it just seems to run out of gas at the end. I mean, the battle between Tommy and Batman isn't really exciting in either category. We'll get into it, but it just it, – it, it, I mean, it's got a great opening. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a great hook, but it just it just kind of – it just kind of peters out toward the end, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree, and it's sort of – I kind of had the same feeling in the last issue that the fight between Batman and Tommy when they were in the costumes in the alley wasn't all that great. I didn't know if it was the art or maybe it's part of the the stakes. I do I did like the idea that Tommy got one good punch in and then Bruce decided, okay, I need to take you down and just plows and just like nails him. Just mm-hmm. like it's not even close because realistically it shouldn't be. I like that, but you're right. And as I was reading this, I was really, really impressed. Like, I, for the most part, I really, really liked this story. I think Collins has a great handle on some of the characterization. Like, the scenes with Bruce and Vicky, I thought their dialogue was really good. It was really insightful and fun to read. I liked the structure of breaking up their scenes with Tommy escaping uh, and kind of, Mm -hmm. like, making his way. I thought the first half of this was really, really cool. It did have a strong visual opening that I liked. Uh, And then 
when Batman actually goes and talks to Detective Spindle and actually has to say, look, I appreciate you being loyal to your partner anymore, but this is not your friend anymore. He's, he's gone crazy. You have to help me take him down. I, I like all of the beats of the story, but it did sort of start to collapse. And, and I said it last time, too, that maybe the, the story was too compact, it was too tight, and it needed a little bit more space. Like, if these, if these two stories... And maybe, maybe he only thought he was writing one issue, and then he was told that, he, you know, Max, you got to write a second issue, and he just kind of played up the same ideas. But if he had had a little bit more time, he could have made the story arc a little bit bigger, a little bit richer, mm-hmm. maybe. Because there's a lot in these two issues that I do like, but they both kind of come down to an action sequence that feels not all that exciting and not like the stakes are all that high. Right, yeah, it's it's almost like as soon as Batman catches up to him, he's going to shut this guy down. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's the impression you get. And, and I know Collins didn't know, he he obviously didn't know at this point he was going to be the, the main Batman writer once Batman Year One was over. But if he'd been able to, you know, if he'd done the first issue, uh, as is pretty much, and then woven the Tommy subplot throughout other issues, you know, they showed, you know, Bruce Wayne trying to help Tommy get into Arkham, which we'll get into that later. But yeah. and then they showed him in Arkham and as he kind of started to get more, you know, just a couple a couple pages each issue as he he got more imbalanced and then he kills the guards, he escapes. And a few issues later, you know, you find out he's been hanging out in this cave, which leads into the Batcave. And then you could have slowly built up this storyline and it would have it wouldn't have been one issue after the other, mm-hmm. you know. It's like this. It feels like this either needed to be one story or a subplot that eventually turned into a sequel. Yeah, that's, that's the feeling I got off of it. No, I completely agree with that. Like, we need to like there needed to be like five issues between their first encounter and their second one. Yeah. Um, and going back, I think the problem is he sets it up in the beginning that Tommy can't tell the difference between a, a normal, a, a, an orderly at his hospital and his arch villains like Joker and Two Face. So by the end of it, we should see that sort of play out. Like, I, I again, like the stakes aren't that high because who is he targeting? He's targeting a gangster, a guy that maybe deserves to die. And if Tommy kills him, okay, worse things, you know, have happened and things like that. You kind of like, you can make that argument, sort of brush his death off that side. But what if Tommy was confused and was going after a real innocent person that he thought mm. was a criminal or that he, somebody that he thought deserved his brutal hand of justice or whatever? Then there is more of an urgency to bring him down. And I just feel like we didn't get that emotional uh, fear, that tension built into the story. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, aside from that, like, and again, this goes back to Collins working with like Dick Tracy and everything. I thought more of the procedural aspects and the detective aspects of the story, I thought worked pretty well in the first two thirds of the story. Mm-hmm, yeah, and it does feel like uh, I think Michael Bailey brought up. It feels like an '80s cop show, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, type. Thing. It does have that feel to it, which which isn't a bad thing, you know. Uh, the Stephen J. Cannell, as he put it, I thought, yeah. Um, I think this one, one thing, this the last story, everybody, when they were talking about Tommy, I mean, we did see him snap some people's necks and things, but there was more of when Batman was talking to uh, the mom or the, the guy that, that Tommy had, uh, the victim. The father, yeah, the father, yeah. The yeah, the victim. father, yep. There was more people talking about him versus you didn't actually see it. Now you get you get to see from his perspective. You see him where he sees. It's really well illustrated by Cowan how it, it switches from him being Batman and having you know smashed Two Face's head into the wall, which is pretty gruesome for an '80s mm. comic, a code-approved comic. 
that you get, you know, it switches from Batman and Two-Face and the Joker to uh, Tommy and the two orderlies in the same exact position. Yeah. That's really well done. I mean, that's the art in this. There's some really strong art in this, and then there's some some panels. There's some really strange things, like um, when Vicky and Bruce are talking, they're on the there's one panel where Bruce's head is just humongous and Vicky looks like a toddler. Like she's touching Bruce's face. And all of a sudden Bruce's head is like three times the size of Vicky's. Yeah. And it's, it's really weird. And then there's that, there's a, there's some really strange stuff going on, on, uh, when, when the police are searching the grounds of, of Arkham Mm -hmm. versus Wayne Manor, which we need to get into that by the way. But it looks like Carmine Infantino stepped in and drew a few panels. <laughs> I mean, there's two panels, uh, panel two and panel four. The people in those panels look like Carmine Infantino faces. I mean, I think Cowan maybe drew one of the Flash villain entries in Who's Who that looked like it was by Carmine Infantino. So maybe he's a fan. I mean, I, th- there's another panel of Batman later that kind of looks Infantino-ish. It's just really strange to me. It just jumped out at me. It's like, did Carmine Infantino, did he deliver the pages for the Superpowers miniseries and fill in a panel here and there? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But while we're at the the deal of Tommy escaping, okay. Apparently Arkham Asylum's grounds and Wayne Manor's grounds in this story connect or are at least very close to one another. Yeah. Okay. Uh There's several problems with that. One, when it was first established, the Arkham, I think it was called Arkham Hospital for Criminally Insane, was actually, it said it was like in uh, Upper New England or something. It wasn't even supposed to be in the in, in Gotham or on the outskirts of Gotham. It was kind of away from Gotham. They never said how much. Mm-hmm. But then eventually, you know, it in its Who's Who entry, it says it's like north of Gotham. So, okay, it's, it's on the outskirts of Gotham, and so is Wayne Manor. And if you go by the old TV show, Wayne Manor is 14 miles from Gotham. But... You usually get Batman, if he's got to go to Arkham, gets in the Batmobile, you get the impression that he, he drives pretty far to get there. I mean, he could just, like, walk across the lawn here and, <laughs> and get to Arkham. And what makes it even worse is I know this is before the Bat God who prepared for everything, but if Arkham Asylum adjoins Wayne Manor, then wouldn't you seal up every possible entrance to the Batcave? Yo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you should anyway. Well, he would but, also, like, if if they were that close, like, the current sort of Batman who prepares for everything would have, like, entryways. He would have, like, a, a tunnel, like, leading from the Batcave directly to the basement of Arkham Asylum, so he could go there yes. whenever he wanted. Yeah, so it, it I, have a, I have a problem with it. I mean, I, th- I think that was kind of a... You know, if they just maybe even had it to where they were able to track him so far from Arkham, you know, they were able to right. follow him. And then they said, well, he's, you know, he stopped somewhere here and it's near Wayne Manor, but we don't have a warrant. So we're going to have to go, you know, get it or something. But it just, I mean, it, it, it you know, they're pretty much right next door to one another here. And it's the one thing about that scene that I, I sort of kind of forgave the logistics of them being so close to each other, the buildings, because I did like that scene with the cops because it gave us a little bit of characterization of Bruce. Like, one of, like, the, the captain was very just sort of dismissive of Bruce Wayne. And yeah. it, it does sort of reinforce the public perception 
of this guy as sort of you know a, a dandy you know boy billionaire playboy who's not somebody that you would ever take seriously, which is good if he is actually Batman because he needs to have that you know you need to look at him and say no he would never be. Uh, so I I think it's I I was okay with the scene just because I liked the scene with the cops because it told me something about the way regular people think of Bruce Wayne. And because I like that bit of characterization, I was kind of like, okay, should Arkham and Wayne Manor be that close? No, but I can roll with it. So, okay. That, that was, yeah, that was it. Another strange thing is Tommy has on his police gym yeah. workout clothes, which, I, you know, a former cop at an insane asylum, you might not want to give him any kind of police uniform or anything that identifies him as police because – you know, he just might try to escape and confuse people by having that outfit on. So yeah, I thought, I thought that was a little weird. Uh, but and I mean, they even point out that so they'll know that it's Tommy. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Batcave when Batman and Robin find it, which Jason never brings up that he thought he heard the Batmobile leave. Which I thought was like, uh, why didn't you tell him? Oh yeah, I thought I heard the Batmobile take off last night. <laughs> Maybe he didn't want to, you know, <laughs> didn't want to get himself in trouble with Batman. But there is a bit of a continuity mistake, or I think it's just something that doesn't make sense. It's on the first page, or or it's when Tommy escapes in the first scene. Uh, okay. It's on page four. It says Arkham Asylum approaching three a.m. The graveyard shift. So Tommy escapes at three a.m. While Tommy is running from the asylum and fleeing towards Wayne Manor, Bruce Wayne and Vicki Vale are on a date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I know Bruce keeps strange hours, but they're at a restaurant, a fancy restaurant that wouldn't be open at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And he comes back later and it says, you know, when, when he gets back, like, it is after midnight or something. The time didn't work out. The, the only way that would make sense is actually if a full day had passed between Tommy's escape and Bruce finding out that Tommy escaped, but that wouldn't work. That wouldn't have made sense. Bruce would have right. heard beforehand that Tommy had escaped. So I think that caption that just says his escape was at 3 a.m., I don't think that makes sense. It could, that couldn't be the right time. So Another thing that doesn't quite make sense is why would Bruce Wayne, who has showed such compassion for this man in the other story, he didn't even want to fight him mm-hmm. in the last issue. Why in the world would he want him to go to Arkham Asylum for a number of reasons? One, Arkham Asylum has a revolving door. You know, I mean, this was before Arkham Asylum was the, you know, the boogeyman house that Grant Morrison made it in the Arkham Asylum graphic novel. Right. But it's still a place that constantly, you know, is losing his rogues gallery. (laughs) Two, his rogues galleries there. These are the... You know, the sickos of the sick here. And I mean, I know, of course, Two-Face Batman obviously has some compassion for, but we haven't quite established their friendly relationship yet. That's coming very soon. But he always had compassion for Harvey Dent anyway. Mm -hmm. So I I understand that to a point. But Gordon's kind of right. The guy's fixated on Batman. And you just worked to have him put in the place where all Batman's rogues gallery is, or the worst of them anyway. So, yeah. I, I, Maybe should have seen this coming, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, you know, uh, yeah. To, uh, not thinking ahead there, Bruce, sorry. <laughs> what did you think of the whole plot with, like, Tommy actually stumbling into the Batcave and stealing the Batmobile? Uh, you know, that... One thing that got me is, now this makes perfect sense for Tommy, but he comes up to the Batmobile and he says, how I've missed you. And that that makes sense for him because the guy's nuts, you know. 
But then later when Batman finds it, he says, how I've missed you. Mm -hmm. Like no version of Batman. Adam West wouldn't even say that. You know, he's he's not that attached. I mean, obviously, Batman has some attachment to trophies and things. He likes to collect souvenirs and stuff. I mean, I I, I like that aspect of the character. It doesn't really fit in with his grim nature. But here he's got a big giant dinosaur, you know, in his clubhouse and. You know, (laughs) so I I like that. But it's a little too it's way too sentimental for Batman uh, over his car. You know, now, if it was Robin, then, yeah, because, you know, they established that the different Robins have been in love with their Batmobiles. You know, it's (laughs) it's part of their childhood and everything. Alan Brenner did that in the uh, excellent uh, Batman Earth to Robin story when Robin had to destroy the the original 50s Batmobile. But (laughs) but uh, yeah, the whole deal with Tommy, it's it's. I don't know. There's no security in the Batcave. I mean, you know, there's the costumes are hanging on a hanger. There's I mean, I know we're not into the movies yet where the costumes in a vault and all the stuff goes off. And, you know, Batman forever when the Riddler's down in the cave and all that, even though it's the Batmobile still rises up every time everybody goes down there. I never have understood that. If if somebody's in the Batcave that's not supposed to be there, why in the hell is the Batmobile popping up out of the floor? But, uh, you know, there's no, you know, he just hops in the Batmobile and takes off. He knows how to start it. I mean, it's, it's, it seems a little too easy for him to both get in and then get out of the Batcave. You know, yeah. it's just it is. Yeah. And my first, the first time I read it, I thought, well, this is kind of silly, and I, I was kind of like, yeah, it, it, I, I don't think this this bumps up against too many of like what I know about Batman today and how what a tight ship he runs. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this this would not happen. But again, like when I was reading again, I, I let myself roll with it a little bit. And I just kind of accepted it more on on the story's own terms. And once I did, you know what? This feels like something like Batman would be so, you know, he, he would seem to have everything lined up. He would seem to be, you know, so tight and orderly. And something weird would happen that would slip under his nose. Like, somebody would just find an entrance in the cave that he didn't know about. Somebody would find this p- spot and sort of stupidly not make a connection, not realize who he is, but just get in the Batmobile and drive off. And Batman would come home and go... What the hell just happened? Where's my car? <laughs> like, like the dude, where's my car? And just like the absurdity of that. The fact that somebody stole Batman's car, that sounds so ridiculous and so unlikely that I kind of like it just yeah. because it's one of those things. It's like that situation would never happen. So it kind of has to happen. It's one of those things. It's so absurd and so. Like, the odds of that ever happening are, like, a million to one, so you want to see it, just to see how Batman would react. It's, like, one of those cosmic chance things. Yeah, like, Batman's reaction is just sort of, like, stunned, like, where's my car? And Robin's like, uh, did you park it in a handicap zone? (laughs) And just, like, them, like, making fun of him. Like, this would be a thing, like, where if this story ever got out, like, the Justice League would never stop making fun of Batman for this. Right. (laughs) So Bruce has that security in the back case. Shut up. (laughs) Lose your car lately. Uh, You you know, it's, that's a good point. It's very Marvel. Yeah. yeah. uh, If you think about this kind of has a Marvel feel because, you know, Vicky's down on Batman, Mm -hmm. you know, Batman's a brute. He has no compassion. You've got all the compassion, Bruce. And then at the end we see that no Batman does have compassion. He really doesn't want to hurt Tommy despite what he's done. 
But yeah, the the one thing that got me when you when you brought up what Robin said, why didn't Batman take Robin with him? <laughs> because that's what stopped Tommy last time, and he's not going to hurt Robin. I right. mean, we're pretty we're pretty certain he's not going to hurt Robin. So you know, Robin just had to show up last time, and it disoriented Tommy long enough for Batman to take him down. So Batman's like, "You stay here." Well, why? <laughs> 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 that's that's the uh, when I saw that I, I had never really thought of that before. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's that's like having kryptonite for Superman. It's like we need to defeat Superman, but leave that kryptonite here. <laughs> you know what? It, that's, a, that's a great point, and I wonder if like. Because Robin did, Robin showed up at the end, but like Batman wanted to bench Robin in the last issue too. He said, "Don't get involved in this," and Robin defied his orders. And I mm-hmm. wonder if something like Max Allen Collins was having trouble figuring out their dynamic and their relationship, like he couldn't make it work until four months later he had to reinvent Robin in order to make it make sense for himself. And he yeah. kind of had to bring in a new dynamic for the characters. Maybe something like that. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Um, the art overall, I like it. Like you said, there are, there are a few occasionally kind of like wonky things, and that's kind of to be expected in almost any story. But I've always I, I've liked Dennis Cowan's work in the 90s when Milestone Comics started. One of the only th- books that I was picking up for like the first half a year or so was Hardware. Um, oh, yeah. And, and he worked on that one. He created that one with, Dwayne, I think Dwayne McDuffie was the writer on that one too. And I just... I always dug Dennis Cowan's art on that one. I've I've read like the first two issues of the question that he did with Denny O'Neill's. At some point, I need to do a deep dive into that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the most part, I, I like his art in this. Um, obviously, we just talked about Alan Davis and Paul Neary, and we're going to be doing that again on the next episode. So anything almost falls short compared to that. Um, yeah. But you know, just as a difference, I, I like this a lot better than Jim Starlin's. Um, I think it's comparable or better than what Trevor Von Eden did in uh, 401. There's just, yeah, there's some good stuff. I think it's it's really it's really solid, especially through like the first. The, I mean, through the part where Batman goes and sees Detective Lewis, mm-hmm. but then at the end it seems a little rushed. I mean the the action sequence with the two Tommies. I mean Bat. I mean the two Tommies, <laughs> the two Batman. Tommy's in there and uh, he grabs a hold of Spindle. The shot of Spindle, you know, he pull, he turns Spindle around. His son to shoot him in the back, but then there's this weird panel of of Spindle, like with his head upside down. It's like he's he's upside down in the panel. It's like a close up. He looks like he's dead. His eyes are open, but he looks lifeless. Mm-hmm. And then the next panel, the real Batman jumps in. Out of nowhere, he's just suddenly there. There's no him crashing through a skylight or through a window, or and they're you know fighting all these guys. And then there's some another really odd panel. I don't know if this is a coloring mistake or, but it looks like Spindle's falling over again, which is like, isn't this guy dead? You know, it's just, yeah, I think that's supposed to be one of the sons that just got punched or flipped by one of the Batman. And I think yeah, it's, it, I think it's your right because he's he's colored with a white suit like Spindle, but that shouldn't be unless no, yeah, right. unless his body just took a long time to fall over from right. <laughs> being he stood there lifeless for a few yeah. minutes. But he, it, it, there were some really just it just seemed rushed. Again, we it, the 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 ending did, but the. The rest of it, other than a few odd, uh, the the only real off panel was the one with Bruce having a giant head earlier. Right, but right. but this feels more like the era, you know. The Starlin art last time felt like you were reading a Bronze Age comic mm. almost. You know, it just this this feels more contemporary with what else is going on in comics at the moment. 
You know, it, it, it just does it for, for some reason. Maybe that's because Starlin had drawn those Batman stories I was aware of in the 70s, you know, and, and it looked exactly the same pretty much or as Batman did. And, and uh, but this is this is nice. And like you said, we'll see Cowan again. And oddly enough, we will see him draw a blonde guy in a Batman suit in that story. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Basically, from page one to page 18, I think is a really solid story. Um, mm-hmm. There's some nice detective work. There's a, a kind of humorous aspect with the Batmobile being stolen. I really like the characterization. Again, like the scenes between Vicky and Bruce and the way it's intercut with Tommy's escape and discovering the Batcave. I really liked the way all of that was structured and the way that played out. I thought that was good. It's like the last four pages that it were kind of... Uh, it were sort of like jumping to an ending that feels not all that important or doesn't really connect. But um, but I still I enjoyed the story. I, I think this was better than the last issue. Um, I think it was better than 401, so I, I think short of Batman 400, I think this is the best issue of the Batman series that we have reviewed so far. Mm, yeah, probably so. I will say one thing. Gordon's commissioner in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got a promotion again. He got a promotion. He's going to get a demotion next time. I guess. Yeah. Next detective. Who knows what... Again, we there, there's... Come on, Denny. There's like no editorial coordination going on here at all. <laughs> we gave you a couple issues to get your, you know, your legs under underneath yourself, but come on now, you know. <laughs> um, speaking of Denny O'Neill, his from the Den column on this one, uh, he mentions that it was Mike Gold, uh, co-editor, who uh, put him in touch with Max Allen Collins the first time, and O'Neill said that the point of the stories in 402 and 403 were basically to prepare readers for the intensity, the dark moods, and the stern morality that would appear in Batman Year One by Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli. So, like this was sort of these two were sort of basically to kind of set what the mood and the feel of his Batman world would be. Mm. So, yeah. well, it does have that grittier urban aspect to mm-hmm. it, you know. Yeah, they, I so mean, I, these, I, these are urban crime stories. Uh, mm-hmm. They're they're not necessarily superhero adventure stories. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I forgot Dennis Cowan had uh, forgot to mention he'd also had drawn Batman before he drew Batman Annual Number Ten that Doug Minch wrote uh, just a year before or just a few months before this before the Minch era ended. So this was his second trip to Gotham City. So I don't remember that story. What was in Annual Number Ten? That's the one where Hugo Strange somehow he manipulates things to where Bruce Wayne goes broke. And oh, yeah, Batman's yeah, yeah. literally like pulling a mattress behind him on the streets. <laughs> it's it's a little it's a little weird to see. It's it's almost like one of those old Silver Age Superman stories where you'd see Superman as a panhandler, you know, or he's <laughs> you know he's got holes in his boots and he's out eating you know beans out of a can or something. Or you yeah. know, I think there was a story. I, I think uh, Mike Peacock was just talking about that cover on uh, Justice's First Dawn. Yeah. I was just listening to the other day, so. <laughs> It reminds you of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, any final thoughts on this issue before we go? No, you know, it's it's despite the the kind of the rushed ending and it kind of fizzling out, it is a good story. And there's some potential here. You know, it's I think I don't think we're spoiling anything. I don't believe that Tommy Karma ever returns. I think this is his last appearance, um, which, you know, it's kind of a shame they could have done something with him down the line. Somebody could have. You know, and and uh, brought him back somehow or something, but no. maybe we can we can hope that he actually got got some help and got straightened out. 
Yeah. I think he really only had this one story, but I think you're right. I think maybe the better play would have been to stretch this out, not necessarily make this a six-issue story arc, you know, something that would fit a trade with just Batman versus this one guy, but no. have them have an early encounter, have Bat- or Bruce Wayne trying to help him out, like, see him kind of, like, struggling to get back, and maybe two or three issues later, he escapes from Arkham, and they have to do this all over again, and maybe maybe that's it, so... Yeah. I think that would have been a better play um, to give this one a little bit more room to breathe. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. All right, folks, we are going to take a promotional break, but when we come back, your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. Hey, who likes Wild Dog? Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? No, 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 no. I'm taking this podcast seriously. There's no way that song will appear anywhere in the show or even the ads. I'm doing this right. I'm FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold Podcast at SNGPod.com. I'm here to tell you about a special podcast I've been working on. Wild Pod, a wild dog podcast, is a series covering the DC Comics character that is sort of their intro to the Punisher, Wild Dog. I'll be covering all appearances of the character in all forms of media. What began as a little mini-series about one of my favorite non-mort DC characters has become a regular ongoing podcast that I love and have no plans to end anytime soon. You can listen at SNGPod.com or on iTunes, Shout Engine, or Stitcher. All right, we are back, and before we hit the social media buzz about Batman Nightcast Episode 5, we have got some iTunes reviews to cover, and first and foremost, thank you everybody who rates us on iTunes or submits us a review. Every review, the more we get, it helps other people find the show, it helps them connect. iTunes supposedly has an aggregator where the more reviews you get, the more the show is promoted on iTunes, so the more we can get, the bigger the show will get, and the happier we will be, and the happier we will be, the better our reviews will be, and the happier you will be. Maybe. <laughs> we'll go with that. All right, let's hear your reviews for Batman Nightcast. Okay, we got one from Big Bows who said, Nightcast is a great addition to the F&W Podcast Network. And he writes, great concept plus outstanding hosts equal highly enjoyable podcast. The inaugural episode sets up future episodes quite nicely. For those missing Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast, I am sure this will be a superb replacement. I was only an intermediate Batman fan during the time period this podcast will cover, so I'm looking forward to in-depth coverage of storylines that I might have missed when they were published. Every DC, Batman, and or comic book enthusiast should give it a try. Well, thank you very much, Big Bows. I think that might be Jim Bow. He's usually liked or favorited stuff on Twitter that I've put out there. So if it's Jim, thank you very much. Cool. Our next review... Come into the light by DS and RS. That is Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the RAD network of podcasts, including Trekker Talk, uh, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Nightcast is a Batman podcast. That certainly doesn't make it unique, but what does make it exceptional are the hosts. Prolific podcast professional Ryan Daly and Supermate's super co-host Chris Franklin bring a wealth of knowledge and a good sense of humor to the post-crisis Batman era. Oh. Thank you, thank you, Darren and Ruth. I'm I'm glad you think we had a good have a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, we've got uh, another uh, review from Gina Bob, who wrote, I'm loving rereading along with this podcast. Well, thank you. Simple, but thank you. That's that's the plan. Hope so. Uh, the next one, Post-Crisis Run from Fatman5150. Great show about the post-crisis era of Batman. Tons of fun to listen to. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you very much. Oh, yes, and we, we plan on it. Uh, we've got a review from Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics podcast and blog. Yeah, and he wrote certainly not to the bat poles. <laughs> you like your. <laughs> Do you like your Batman campy and cracking jokes? Well, he's not on this podcast. <laughs> this is the Batman that emerged post-crisis. He gets dark and gritty sometimes. Good thing he's got two fans hosting this show that love to have a good time. Ryan and Chris point out the good, the bad, and most definitely the ugly in these stories. Pick and choose your favorite issue or strap in and enjoy the full ride from the mid-80s through the 2000s. And that's just the Batmobile speed here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go wrong here unless your favorite Batman villain is Shandell or Magpie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably won't be talking about the Liberace uh, episodes of the Batman series on this one, but, you know. Clinton loves Shandell. He drops that name, like, even when it's not even part of the conversation. But do you like Shandell better or his evil brother, Harry? I mean, which one do you like better, Clinton? Come on. <laughs> Uh, and our last iTunes review this time from J. David Weeder, who hosts the Dave Cave podcast, which is going to be looking at the Silver Age Batman stories. Dave says, my new go-to podcast. Batman Nightcast quickly found a permanent home in my podcast listening. Ryan and Chris complement each other perfectly, and they have both knowledge and great love for this era of the Dark Knight. I eagerly await every episode, and it will be on my podcatcher for the show's entire lifespan. Big thumbs up. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, everybody who wrote in a review on iTunes or just rated the show. All it takes is a little click, five stars, hopefully five stars. I think we're worth it. Cool. Yes, thank you all very much. Okay, on to the social media buzz. Nightcast Episode 5 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Too Old, Too New Podcast, Alfie Gallagher, Andrew Leyland, Ange, Austin Kuckendall, Bat at Shapirek, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Closeout Comics, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, D at Dinosaur No One, David Weeder, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Man at G-Man underscore Canada, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, Jim Bal, Joe Crawford, Con L, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Lucien Dessar with Diamonds, I mean, sorry, Lucien Dessar, Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Mike Alvarisi, Mr. Morbid, Parlapod Comics Talk, Pod Dylan, RAD Adventures, Robert Patrick K, Robin's Nest, World Spine Podcast, Ross McCod, Siskoid, Slang Word Resists, Stephen Bird, Super Ali, Treasury Cast, Waiting for Doom, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Javier Golden, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Since last episode, we've received Facebook likes and shares from Aaron Henley, Andrew Leyland, Ben Rush, Brad Dade, Brian Craig, David Foster, DeBeche. It's all about DeBeche, about DeBeche, no treble. <laughs> Gene Rivers, H. Daniel Rybolt. I've been wanting to do that forever. Uh, Henry Santa Jr., Holly Rowe Weeder, J. David Weeder, Jeremy Gunter, Joaquin Rivera, John S. Drew, Jules Boyle, Keith G. Baker, Ken Haltzhauser, Martin Gray, Matthew Prince, Mike Zumo, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, Scott Cage, Scott Rowland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Strawbridge, Sean Connery, no, not him, uh, Shag, Siskoid, Sonny Morrison, Stephen Bird, and Zoom Yukonori. What would a Sean Connery review of our show sound like? <laughs> I like your Batman Nightcast. It's quite, quite lovely. Could you talk about some more of the Max Allen Collins one? <laughs> 
Ah, beautiful. Set that up and you just knocked it out of the park. (laughs) On Facebook, we got a comment from Andy Leyland of the Hey Kids Comics podcast, among other shows that he does. I've heard that another reason that Barr became persona non grata was that he had a huge argument with either Paul Levitz or Dick Giordano about Barr constantly crediting Bill Finger when talking about the creation of Batman. No idea if that's true, but it seems plausible. You know, now that he wrote that, I seem to remember that's one reason why Barr wasn't an editor at DC anymore. Um, Other than he edited – he was editing several titles in the early 80s. And then all of a sudden he wasn't. And then eventually I think he became the editor for Batman the Outsiders and Outsiders. But I think that was because he wasn't basically towing the company line. And he was going around saying, well, you know, Bill Finger co-created Batman. And uh, they were like, you can't do that. You know, you're you're on staff. And uh, if, if I remember right, if that, that, but that, that does ring a bell. Don't mess so. with their money. <laughs> That's right. They got contracts. They don't want to pay out if they don't have to. Don't mess with their money. Well, yeah, and you know, and and uh, you know, there's I've heard different things over the years of how much Kane had and it was involved in Batman at that time, and some people say that he still owned part of the character. And this, I don't know if that's true. Who knows? But uh, obviously, now we finally get to say uh, created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. It's not and Bill Finger, but at least it's something, you know. So yeah, it's something. So yeah. All right, people, moving on to the comments posted over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network page, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, if you leave a comment on the website, we'll be sure to address it in some way, though we might read part of the message on the episode so things don't get too redundant. Uh, Our first comment came from Javi the Golden Boy, who said, Eat bat guano, Collins and Starlin. Your superiors have arrived and found you wanting. (laughs) I guess Javi really likes the Alan Davis and Mike Barr run. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, he says, ahem, sorry, but seriously, Barr and Davis are one of my favorite Batman teams up there with Loeb and Lee, Tim and Dini, and of course, Cook and Cook. I love the idea of Batman being just a little self-aware and reacting accordingly. Don't you ever reference that show again, Jason. I looked ridiculous. While that show should be respected, there is also some room for mocking. I I agree with that, and I, I kind of had a bigger issue with that in the last time we talked. Like, I'm fine with them sort of gently teasing the show. I just didn't want it to feel like making fun of the 66 show from a place of meanness. If it's coming from a place of love, cool, because Batman belongs to all of us. But if it's coming from that attitude of you're stupid for liking that, that was so old and cheesy, grow up now. It's the 80s. Then I've got an issue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting that Javi marked that one of his favorite Batman creative teams was there with uh, Jim Lee and Jeff Loeb. I bet that's probably more of a generational thing because I certainly think uh, younger people have a much much more of a fondness for the Batman hush story uh, than people who are a little bit older. But uh, yeah. it's pretty. <laughs> it was the it was the first absolute edition I ever bought. I had only okay. read two of the regular issues, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance and, and read this, so I got the Absolute Edition, and it did look pretty, yeah? The, you know, the Leylands have, have covered a lot of the, the Loeb Batman stuff, and, and I mean, I like Jeff Loeb's stuff, but really, a lot of his stuff doesn't hold together at the end. <laughs> you know, I mean, even even Long Halloween, you can argue, and I know that's blasphemous to some people, but not sure the, the mystery aspect of that book really hangs together like it should, you know, the... Especially with all the accolades, yeah. you know, put I, on it. I used to think that story was like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, and at some point, and I, I actually, I think they, they probably made me realize more that I wasn't even looking at. But even before that, I think I kind of realized, I was like, if it weren't for Tim Sale on this book, uh, I would have like hardly any feeling for this. Uh, right. I, I think a lot of it was his, but yeah. anyway, moving on. 
Okay, Rob Kelly said, I unreservedly love the Bar Davis issues of tech. I agree they mixed the flavor of the 60s TV series with a more modern approach, which I thought really worked. To me, these stories are Batman comics. Everything I like about the characters and situations. It is tragic that the run was cut so short, but I loved what we got. And I love the poster-like cover. It reminds me of those great Dick Spring or Jerry Robinson ones from the 40s. Our hero in some unreal situation, which conceptualizes the story. Great all around. Yeah, no, it, it definitely had that sort of old-time feeling. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said, Glenn Fry, guys, come on. It's a scientific fact his solo output is terrible. Can I give the guy a break. He just died. Yeah, yeah, it's not a scientific fact, Dave. <laughs> it's just in your head that it's a scientific fact. <laughs> David later said, looking forward to Desperpado and Eagles podcast. <laughs> that name <laughs> Good yes. I told him I was gonna. I might actually do it and use that name. He said he he wanted half the income off of it. So, <laughs> uh, Dave came back a little bit later down the thread and said, "You know who made me love this era? Robin Barr and Davis gave Robin an infectious joy that was missing in the pre-crisis Jason days. While sometimes Jason was written as being a bit younger than physically depicted, couldn't tell if he was ten mentally or fifteen physically." Here he was a kid who had the most dangerous and amazing job, and he knew it. Sadly, this was all undone when people like Rob Kelly conspired to murder Jason. Of course, Davis's art doesn't hurt things. Like with Marshall Rogers, his stay was too brief, but my God, it was beautiful. I can't argue there. I think he's right. I think the the Robin is just, I mean, you know, he is just this bouncing ball of energy in this, and it just, it really... It really sells Robin. It's kind of like it's like if you're going to do a young Robin, you have to. To me, you got to go all in. You've got to have that youthful energy, that devil may care attitude. Uh, the the animated series guys figured that out when they did their version of Tim Drake, who was pretty much a combination of the comic Tim Drake and the Jason 2.0 that we're going to get here in a few months. Right, right. You know, and he was an eager go getter. He was a little kid. I mean, he did little kid things when you know he was like walking along the balancing along the rooftop while Batman was looking through a pair of binoculars or something. Mm-hmm. He, you know, in the background, he was just, he was always in motion, you know, yeah. and that's how you got to handle a youthful Robin to sell it. And, and these guys did it. And I also just think it works so well visually as, as, you know, to kind of break it up, you've got Batman just cloaked in shadow, all black and blue or something. And then this sort of dancing little sprite kind of bouncing around him in red and yellow. It's great. No, I, I really like it. Yeah. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I'm with Rob. That cover is just perfect. With the massive classic logo, the icing on the giant prop cake. What they did to Catwoman really annoyed me. Selina had been a great supporting character for years, and seeing her forced back into her life of crime was upsetting. Plus, I wanted to be on the path to an Earth 2-style marriage. Uh, this is actually um, a comment that we got a lot in the feedback for this episode is talking about what happens to Catwoman, not just in the last issue that we covered, but in the next issue of Detective that will be on next week. And I sort of want to reserve my feelings about that storyline until next episode. Uh, so I, for, for everybody who commented on what happens to Catwoman, we hear you. I'm probably going to respond to most of those comments when we review the next issue and, and what happens to Catwoman then. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Uh, Dial C for comment said, really love the art in this issue. It does have the animated series feeling, which wouldn't surprise me if this was one they used for inspiration in the design. I have no problem with the skinny Joker, even though he does look like Jack Skellington. It works for me as I feel it makes the Joker creepier. And I do like straight line. Just the concept of the guy changing outfits to fit some mood just fits working with the Joker. And well, I just chalk it up to the Joker just attracts crazy people. 
Though while I love Harley, I kind of miss when Joker would have a one-off henchman in these comics. It's always interesting to hear about the phase that everyone goes through with the 60s show, as I never went through that and never understood when writers and such would try to mock the show. Though it makes me wonder when the Nolan trilogy and what it brought to the character will be looked on in later years. Who knows? Maybe there will be a phase for that series. I, you know, I kind of feel like that it is kind of already starting to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hear more and more people comment you know like kind of like in hindsight they went too realistic you know they tried to sell the realism too much they you know they took too much of the joy the fantasy out of it you know i'm i'm hearing that more and more and i and i honestly kind of agree i think that you know i think batman begins had a pretty good healthy balance of it i think the dark knight uh you know you lost some of that but you know the joker kind of helped keep a little bit of that but then by the time you got the Dark Knight Rises, all the, the fantastical elements are, other than some laughably fantastic logistics, uh, <laughs> the, the, the fantasy's kind of gone out of it, you know. No, yeah, I completely agree. And I would say, like, right around, almost as soon as Dark Knight Rises came out, I think the shine started to come off the apple. And I think a lot of people were saying, we've gone too far. And certainly with the portrayal uh, in Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, I think more people mm-hmm. are thinking, we've gone way too far with this. Um, overall, I liked Nolan's trilogy. I liked all three of those movies, even though they had faults. The Dark Knight is one of my favorite movies of all time. And yet, I don't think of it as a superhero movie. Like that, I wouldn't put it in that genre, even though it's a Batman movie. It's right. just like a crime. It's like a crime epic, like Heat or something like that, or Silence of the Lambs. Like, it's it's a different kind of movie, and maybe that works once, but you try and base your entire franchise, the entire Batman IP, on that type of thing, and I don't think it works. Or at least I think that's just way too limiting. Uh, yeah. So anyway. It, it leaves too much stuff unusable. Right. I mean, because it doesn't work in that world, so you can't you can't bring in Mister Freeze. You know, yeah. you can't. You know, it just wouldn't work there. So, yeah. Um, my seventh favorite Canadian, Siskoid, said, <laughs> "My problem with the early Outsiders has a lot to do with how Batman has basically set them all up to fail. He is the worst leader slash mentor. But I don't have that problem with Bar Solo or Duo Batman story. Strangely, can't wait to discover his run with you." And then he said, Woot, Cavalier, and Clay is one of my favorite books ever. Even though it's a thick brick, yes it is, I wanted to start reading it as soon as I finished it. And I'm someone who doesn't reread very many books because it's already a tragedy that I'll never read everything I want to or should before I die. Get on that, Chris. Fire and Water Book Club, coming soon from our network. <laughs> that would be an interesting show. We should do that. Uh, yeah, I need to get on that. I'll have to. I'll have to go down to the library and and get it. I've got a connection at the library, so I, I can get it. <laughs> yeah. You, <do. laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. He brings up the outsiders bit. One of my favorite moments in comics when I was a kid was the uh, when they did the outsiders New Teen Titans crossover. It showed that Robin was a much better leader than Batman. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Batman was just being a total jerk to the Outsiders and trying to boss the Outsiders and the Titans around. And Dick was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, at one point he even says, look, I know a lot more about leading a team than you do, buddy. Back <laughs> off and let me handle this. And at the end, Batman has to agree. Yeah, you know, you're, you're better at this than I am. And I and that that was great. And, I, and that, that was another one of those, you know, moments that, you know, where they kind of reconciled their differences and put left them in a ni- nice place that will soon be totally destroyed by the comics we're going to cover. <laughs> 
Uh, and for any of our listeners who would like a Fire and Water book club, um, no promises that that ever actually happens. But in the meantime, check out the podcast Required Reading. It's by Stella and Tom Panarese. It's a, it's a fun show. They cover a lot of just basic canon books that uh, you might read in high school or college. And, and they're a couple of actual teachers, so they know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ange wrote in and wrote, I read this issue in the greatest Joker stories ever told trade, and I loved it. Beautiful art by Davis, one of those artists who elevates every property he's in. Outsiders, Excalibur, The Nail, all better with Davis. And this Catwoman is stunning. Yes, yes. We <laughs> and we had to, we were so holding ourselves back from talking about the art last issue because <laughs> we want to do that Alan Davis spotlight next time. So and we talked uh, about JLA the nail on your Supermates. Was that episode fifty? Yes, that was yeah. Supermates episode fifty. You and Rob came by with you guys and Cindy and I talked about JLA the nail. Almost say JLI the nail. That'd be different. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for one of a nail, Blue Beetle is lost. Uh, <laughs> JLA the nail. That was one of my favorite Supermates that we ever did. So if you haven't listened to that show and you want to hear us gush about Alan Davis for like two hours, go listen to it right now. And in that one, he draws Catwoman in her purple Jim Ballant costume, which is mm. (laughs) – Yes, that's true. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Michael Bailey, our buddy from uh, Views from the Long Box and many, many other projects – Michael said, I absolutely love these issues of Detective. I may joke about them, but they were fantastic old-school Batman and Robin fighting bad guys stories with some great character work thrown in for good measure. Barr had a firm handle on The Dark Knight, and I agree with everyone that raved about his take on Robin. It is a shame that Alan Davis didn't stick around longer, because I think he had the potential to rise to Brayfogle heights as a Batman artist. I like just about all of his work on this series, except for his Joker. The poofy hair does nothing for me, and he lacks the malice to go with the mirth. Other than that, it's a beautiful book to read. The decision to have Catwoman go back to being a bad guy and forgetting Bruce's identity was unfortunate and one that smacks of a new editor having a problem with a previous direction and, to their minds, writing the ship. Or maybe it had to do with Miller. Given that we get year one just a few months after this and the total hatchet job Miller does on Selena's backstory, it wouldn't surprise me that Frank's S&M take on Catwoman had something to do with her going back to the dark side in these issues. I know everyone raves about year one, and it is certainly the best thing to ever happen to Jim Gordon, but Selena deserved a lot better. But that's a rant for when you get to those issues. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to be interesting to to get there, and and I think he's I think he's right. I think, it, it, but it's it's really strange because you know they they obviously they wanted to get Catwoman back into the villain category, but again, why not just why acknowledge the previous continuity? Because here in this issue, it seems like Vicky Vale has not been around for quite some time. Mm-hmm. It seems like her and Bruce are reconnecting after a long absence from one another, but yet she was in Batman number four hundred and all the issues leading up to that. She was a supporting cast member. And she was an off, on again, off again, romantic interest for Bruce. And she was in the background and there were plots around her. So it's it's really strange. It's like Batman's existing in the post-crisis continuity and Detective Comics as of right now is still in the pre-crisis continuity. <laughs> again, this was something that we said on the very first episode. We don't we don't have like a hard start line, a hard like for some of them the the plots or the stories seem like they're absolutely post crisis, but the characters aren't behaving that way or they're not drawn that way. It's it's just a, a weird thing that we've got to manage, but it makes for good discussion, so that helps. Um, sure. As for the other stuff, like I said, I, I will talk more about my feelings about Catwoman and what happens to her in the next episode. 
So. Uh, Lewis wrote in and said, I agree that this Robin is basically Dick. As a young noob, it was a challenge to differentiate between him and Jason. And as an adult, I have more appreciation for their initial differences appearance-wise. His original Robin costume looked good, a lot better than the adult Earth 2 Robin, and beat Tim to the punch with the green leggings. I wonder if the TV series influence was the reason DC stuck Jason in Dick's costume and dyed his ginger hair. Except for perhaps a hairstyle, the two were indistinguishable. Um, you know, I did a wrote an article for back issue number 48, and I asked Jerry Conway why they didn't keep that awesome Don Newton design Robin costume from mm-hmm. Detective number 526. And he said it was because of licensing. And I think probably right as that issue was coming out was when the superpowers push was getting ready to start the toy yep. line and all the merchandise. So they were really going to start pushing the classic Robin look even harder than they had in the last several years. Yeah. So uh, that probably helped kill it. But that is a great costume. And I've seen it pop up here and there in flashbacks. And I can't keep up with what Jason's continuity is supposed to be this week. But I think at one point they actually, in modern comics, have showed him briefly in that costume. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a shame it didn't stick around. And I think I think that would have helped. I think. I think that would have helped give Jason a leg up and not just been the replacement Robin because, you know, Tim got his own suit and nobody had, you know, any problems with Tim. And I think part of it was the way Tim was written, but they were smart to give him his own visual. Yeah, I really liked uh, that original Jason Robin costume. I thought it was a sweet design. And uh, when I think of Robin, and I, I love Tim Drake's costume too, when I think of Robin, I always default to the classic, the original version. But if you're telling stories about Robin, Dick Grayson, whoever it is, kind of growing up and maturing, eventually he's got to he's got to put some pants on. <laughs> like that, yeah. that, that original costume works for a Robin of a very certain age, and I think George Perez might be the only person I've ever seen who could draw a an adult looking Robin in that outfit and make it work. I don't know how he does it, but uh, that uh, he might be the only one. Um, yeah. But after that, like I think. And I, th- that's the other thing. Like, I've never really liked other versions of Robin's, co- like adult Robin, kind of like the Earth Two Robin. I'm not wild about that costume. <gasps> I know, I know. I'm just that that one has never done much for me. But if adult Robin were to put on the Jason Todd Robin costume that Don Newton designed, I think that would have been a cool look f- for that. If like Dick Grayson or whoever it is grew up and sort of put on that costume. And part of that is because I still like him being Robin, not Nightwing. But that's uh, other discussions. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that, I think the yellow the yellow leggings mm-hmm. uh, help kill the the Robin costume. The their two Robin costume. I love it. It's one of my favorite looks. I'm glad they used it on the Brave and the Bold cartoon. But it, you got to admit, it's a whole lot better than that god awful Batman costume he had on. I do. I do agree with that. Yes. And I will say the right artist can make that costume look awesome. But Jim Apparel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris Carnes said, I really enjoyed the show and envied both of you talking about it. Thank you. I love the cover. Look at the mouths of each character on the cover and notice all of the expressions conveyed. It's a perfect depiction of the reactions on the cover. How often does an artist have me look at mouths of all things? I have no idea, Chris. That's that's you and your thing. But Sal Bushima does a lot, but um, no other than him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Davis's take on the Joker was great too. In my mind, I called this a glam version of the Joker, but still just as menacing as any artist could do. Nice balance, hard to pull off, but he makes it come off with ease. I thought that this creative team really complemented each other. Yes, of course, Barr and Davis mesh and blend so well, but even Neary's inks and John Workman's lettering should get some praise too. When I think of this issue, I can close my eyes and visualize Workman's distinctive style, particular words bolded for effect. 
Aside from maybe Tom Orzachowski's work on Uncanny X-Men, no other letter immediately comes to my mind that fit perfectly with the writing and artwork. Great stuff. I'm glad he pointed those the, those guys out because, you know, I think we do sometimes we get so caught up in the the artist and the inker that we forget the colorist and the letterer. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, if lettering's good in comics, I don't really notice it all that much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things. It's only when it's bad that it jumps out at me, yeah. you know, or, or there's something weird going on. Like they had to paste – somebody else had to come in and touch up another letterer's work because they there was an editorial change or something. Um, you know, or there's some weird thing where they've picked a font for a character, like in the, the Busiek Perez Avengers run when they gave Thor that god awful font you couldn't read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the only time I, you know, stuff like that jumps out at me. But uh, yeah, that's good, good call on that. That's I'm, I'm glad he pointed that out. And speaking of unsung contributors to these stories, um, I didn't really get into it, but uh, this issue of Batman that we covered, Batman issue 403, the inker was Greg Brooks, maybe the greatest artist of all time. And I'm just going to throw that out there. I love his work. He's a great man who would never do anything bad. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there this time. <laughs> but, okay. I'm not being sarcastic, Christina. No. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, moving on. <laughs> moving right along. Uh, the Barry White of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Professor <laughs> Zoom Yukonori, said, I find your analysis of pre-crisis elements and storylines in these Batman stories published after the Crisis series ended fascinating. And further – I'd love to hear uh, Zoom say fascinating. I bet you sounds like Leonard Nimoy. And further cements what many comic readers either did not know or had forgotten that the original, quote-unquote, intent of Crisis on Infinite Earths – was to streamline the DC multiverse into a single universe. And aside from the history changes involving the non-Earth-1 characters, most of the DC titles, which had mostly taken place on Earth-1, were still carrying forward with most of their Earth-1 continuity intact. The idea of, quote-unquote, rebooting the DC continuity with Man of Steel and Batman Year One, Emerald Dawn, and eventually Hawkworld came after the fact. Though I am not fully clear on exactly when the reboot decision was made, but it must have been after Crisis Number 11 and Number 12 was produced. You know, I have heard Marv Wolfman say that he wanted to reboot after Crisis Number 12, and he was basically told no. <laughs> you know, we're not going to do that. And and honestly, probably one of the reasons they didn't was because the new Teen Titans was so popular. I mean, if they started from the bottom and, you know, from the heroes just debuting, where would the Teen Titans come from? You know, yeah, uh, some stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's that's always their problem is they want to have the, these hard restarts to kind of get everybody on board. But they don't want to sacrifice whatever their current cash cow is. And especially yeah. if it's something built with a lot of legacy. Like, see, I mean, we've said it before, but the new 52 didn't want to, uh, like, start Batman over after Grant Morrison had been doing all of this stuff that by the time he got to it, it's like, I, I can't get into this. And Jeff Johns' work on Green Lantern, all of the stuff with the Lantern Corps. What, you want to just, like, jettison all of that that you've been working on for six years and because you can't start over with like a, a brand new continuity and introduce that stuff right away from jump as if you've built you've done that you know foundation building it just doesn't work so they're always kind of in that position it's like well we want to make these easier for brand new readers but we don't want to toss out like the stories that our readers have been following for the past decade so right and, and then, you know i know burn wanted to he he was told that superman would be starting out, you mm-hmm. know, and it, when with his with his regular titles, and as he started work on Man of Steel, and they're like, uh, no, you've got to have him up and running, and he's been in operation for years, so that's why 
you know, you Man of Steel jumps along the timeline, and then when you get to Superman number one and the the books that are coming out this very month of, of the Batman issue we're talking about, he's been in operation just like he always had pre-crisis, but his backstory is just different. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. So there you go. All right, and our final comment on the last episode, Jimmy McGlinchey said, Straight Line was a nice sidekick to the Joker, although you wonder if Gaggy from the Silver Age could have been used. He was brought back to good effect during the Gotham City Sirens run as an opponent to Harley Quinn. Yeah, well, Gaggy shows up very briefly in the Return of the Cape Crusaders movie, which I think we brought up before, but yeah. So. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't use Gaggy, honestly, but Straight Line's some weird kind of, like, he's like Otis meets, Otis <laughs> from Superman the movie meets Woozy Winks. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. It is a funny gimmick. Like, like, you know, whatever they need for him, he just kind of, like, switches to be that scene, that gimmick. And uh, But, yeah, when he became Rambo and he was kind of going through, like, the nom flashback, that, that was a little bit weird. Yeah, so. <laughs> it was a little strange. Yeah, it's like, because then it was, wasn't was just a visual gag. It right. was a, you know, character gag. It's, it's like, he's like a Tex Avery cartoon yeah. or something. <laughs> All of a sudden it's like, I'm not sure I should be laughing with this guy. This is kind of sad. but yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I get it. He's a supervillain working for the Joker, but he needs help. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you everybody who left a comment on the Fire and Water website. Thank you everybody who has written iTunes review. If you haven't, please do so. Uh, thanks everybody who liked our show on Facebook and Twitter, all of the social media promotion. We enjoy the show. We love hearing back from you. Chris, tell our listeners what they can expect on the next episode of Batman Nightcast. Well, the next episode of Batman Nightcast, we will be discussing Detective Comics number 570, which is the second part of the first Alan Davis Mike W. Barr story and the resolution of the Catwoman uh, deal, which we will discuss. We, you know, we're holding back comments, and I've got to say that uh, we are in a pretty golden, uh, golden era of Batman now that we're past. Not that there's anything wrong with this issue, but now we're into Barr and Davis, and the next issue of Batman we cover pretty significant. <laughs> <laughs> It is kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of well-known. Yeah, we'll get to that, uh, to that one in a month. So uh, uh, thank you, everybody. Yep, thanks. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. <laughs>